0: Welcome to the Echo Community Church podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Morning, everybody. Um, Just to extend an invitation to you, uh, Mary's taking me up on it. It is okay. If you sit in the first couple rows, that's <laughs> just throwing it out there. <laughs> Next week, is, you tell. Okay. Oh, thank you, Steph. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Wow, you're going. Wow. Now I'm like, literally. You went like row one, seat two. On. Pressure The pressure is on. Sheesh. I wasn't expecting anybody to take me up on that. Now I'm a little extra nervous. So glad you're here. Glad you came up front. Uh, We had a fun opportunity in our 9 a.m. service to do something we've read about in Acts. A couple times in Acts, we see churches that lay their hands on missionaries, and they send them out on an adventure to go tell people about Jesus. And Um, One of our uh, sisters in our congregation, Suba, is getting ready to head out on a 10-day mission trip. And she leaves the 18th. She's coming back the 28th. So we prayed over Suba. We prayed for Rajiv. We prayed for the kids uh, this week. Um, She will be going, she'll be spending the 10 days between uh, Washington, D.C., Virginia, and New York. And she's going to be with a team that's doing a lot of street evangelism, meaning just going out as a team, pairing up with somebody, and just getting into spiritual conversations with whoever happens to be in their path. And so we just prayed over her, prayed God's anointing and boldness over her. And also, um, we prayed that God would teach us as a church through her experience, that she would come back with testimonies and stories and experience that she's gained to help each and every one of us feel more comfortable and prepared and willing to get into spiritual conversations that God brings us into when we're just out and about throughout the course of the week. In fact, Suba and I have been talking for a couple of months, just dreaming up this idea of this is probably not going to be the name of the event, but we've been calling it Pray and Play, which I realize probably if you drew up what you think we're talking about, wouldn't look like it at all. But we were just thinking, wouldn't it be cool if every now and again... We could just say, whatever, Saturday morning at 9, we're going to get together to the church and pray together for 15 minutes, and we're going to drive over to the avenue. We'll partner up, and we will walk around for an hour, and just whoever God highlights to us or whatever, we're just going to make ourselves available to have spiritual conversations with whoever happens to be there. Some of you are like, that is amazing. Some of you are like, that is terrifying, and I will be busy that day, so please let me know, um, but the reality of it is, you know, and then you know, huddle back after an hour and grab coffee and talk about what we experience. But the reality is, that's part of what being a Christian is. I don't mean that all of us have to gather together and go to, go to the avenue and walk, but I mean just being aware and available to get involved in spiritual conversations to ever God puts in our path. That's a big part of what living a, a disciple's life looks like. And all through the Book of Acts, we see how that's really how. We got here. That's really how the message of Jesus was able to be transmitted out of one city and became a global movement. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today, uh, beginning at verse 16. It is an astounding story. It takes place in the country of Greece. Now, you're nodding your head already. Like, see, this was perfect, right? Have you been? Not yet, yet, but it's on your list. Yes, Yeah. Yeah, in your dreams, okay. Has anybody, I know John W. shared that he had been, have you been there? You, okay, a couple of you have been there. What are your memories of, how recently? It wasn't that long ago, right? Did it? Five years ago. What were your couple quick impressions of the? Oh, wow. What was Athens like? It was not nice. In what way? Dirty, rundown? Oh my. Demonstrations and. Got it. I'm sorry. I was. Is it just me? Or do you hear metal being pounded outside maybe there is a blacksmith next door that is just making horseshoes today or something okay i'm gonna try and tunnel through that i can't promise it's not going to distract me but i'm gonna keep going it's interesting so you've oh also to corinth Yeah, yeah 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 that's really cool and it's funny because like those two stories get contrasted a lot of people want to compare the substance of Paul's sermon that he preaches on Mars Hill on the Areopagus against how he preaches at Corinth. And we'll, we'll see that today. And it's interesting that you say that. Others that I've talked to who have been to Athens say the same thing. Not what they were expecting. Now, could you still see the history and those types of things represented there? Buildings and whatnot. Remains, ruins. Okay. Oh, the Acropolis, yeah. Outside, you saw Mars Hill, which is where the story takes place today. It takes place at Mars Hill, so, so okay. A few things there, but not, not. But I guess the history and the the remains and things are not like what is most prominent there. Not your most prominent memory today. More so in Corinth. Got it. Got it. Yeah, definitely on one of my kind of bucket lists. Uh, items is I would love to do the circuit of kind of where I would love to visit the areas where Paul went on his missionary journey. I've been to Israel, but I have not been to that part of the world. I was a little bit envious. Pastor George from Trinity was saying, yeah, we're going on a, on a you know, the, there, Trinity's going on a cruise of the, the you know, of the, the Greek Isles and the, you know, kind of the Mediterranean theater where Paul was, and there's a scholar on the boat I was like, there's a scholar, like a real scholar on the boat? They're like, yeah, he talks to you, and then you can get out. And go. I was like, is the scholar available while everybody's off the boat? I would just sit with a notebook in front of the scholar and just have them talk, and I would write as fast as I can. Um, but the story takes place in Greece. Now, if, we've been, we, if you've been with us through studying Acts, when Paul was thinking about this trip, Greece was not even a thought in his mind originally, not on his itinerary when he was doing his multi-stop Airplane ticket on Expedia. He did not include Greece in it. It all started. It was birthed out of this this desire he had in his heart to go back and visit all the places that he and Barnabas visited on their first missionary journey. And so uh, Paul teamed up with Silas. Barnabas teamed up with John Mark. Their church in Syria of Antioch prayed over them and sent them out. And Paul and Silas started in Lystra and Derby, and there. They ministered, and they also added another guy to their team. They added Timothy to their team in Leicester and Derby. So now their group of two grew to a team of three, and then they wanted to go to the next city, and the Holy Spirit said, nope, you're not going there. I said, okay, well, maybe we'll go to choice number two. Holy Spirit said, nope, you're not going there. And so they end up at a, a port, a port city of Troas, and there... A fourth guy is added to their team, a man by the name of Luke, who was a physician, also happens to be the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts that we're reading right now. And so at that point, the four of them aboard a boat because Paul has a dream, and in that dream, a European man says, come over here and help us. And so, so Paul and Silas and Timothy and now Luke get on a boat, and they set sail for Europe. And when they get off the boat, they are the first Christians to set foot in Europe. The reason we're pretty confident that Luke is with them this time is because he changed the tense of his writing at this point in the Gospel of Luke. Up to that point, he said, they went here, they went there, they said this, they did that. He changes to saying, we went here, we went there, we got on the boat, we went to Philippi. So now, kind of fast forward, this is where the pace picks up. Now we're like Acts chapter 15 and 16. They get off into Philippi. They find a small group of women having a a, a prayer service, and they tell them about Jesus, and we see the first European come to Christ in in the person of Lydia, who is an entrepreneurial businesswoman. She opens up her home. They start a church in Philippi. Uh, Paul and Silas get arrested. They get beaten. They get thrown in jail. That night there's an earthquake. The doors fall off. The chains fall off. None of the prisoners leave. They share the gospel with the jailer and his family. They get saved the next day. The officials basically admit we were wrong in all of this and they send Paul, Silas, and Timothy on ahead. We believe, or I believe, I should say, that. Uh, There are others who may not believe that, but I believe that Luke stayed behind in Philippi because the tense of the writing changes back to they did this and they went there and they went ahead. So it's very likely that Luke stayed behind in Philippi to help strengthen the church that was there to disciple them more deeply. So then Paul and Silas and Timothy go on to Thessalonica and they preach the same sermon for three consecutive Sabbaths in the synagogue. Some Jews believe, some Jews don't like the message, they get angry, they stir up a mob, they go through the town on a manhunt for Paul and Silas, and Timothy. They can't find them, and so they grab some of the believers in the new church. They take them to the officials. They make all kinds of threats. Push comes to shove, and ultimately the church, at nighttime while it's dark, sends the three men out of Thessalonica, and they head on to the next city of Berea. So they get to Berea. Now we're Acts chapter 17. Paul, Silas, Timothy get to Berea, Same song, different verse. Go to the synagogue. They find a much more open-minded, studious, uh, scripture-seeking group of people. They preach. The people go home and fact-check everything. They preach again. They fact-check some more. There's a real healthy dynamic going on there. People are finding Christ and salvation. The church is beginning to be established. And then word gets back to Thessalonica of what's going on in Berea. And the discontent Thessalonican Jews say, we're going to head over to that city, and we're going to run them out of that city too. So they show up and another mob forms. And this time, Paul decides, I'm going to go on ahead. He leaves, he makes his way to a boat, gets to a- and sets sail for Greece, but he leaves behind Silas and Timothy in Berea so that the two of them can continue to strengthen and disciple the church. Once Paul gets on the boat... He sends word with the entourage, the security detail that took him there. He says, please let those other two guys know that they need to come and and meet up with me again. We'll reform the team, and we'll keep pressing on. So when we get to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, what I need you to see is Paul is planning to wait. He's setting sail for Athens in the country of Greece. It's very likely he's never been there before, but he's heard about it. Athens was extremely well-known at that time, even though it was kind of its glory days were about 600 years before this story. This story takes place in the middle of the first century. Its glory days, its highest point were maybe 600 years before. It was still very much an epicenter for art, for culture, for commerce, population. Um, The people there were extremely highly educated. They were deep thinkers. They were very intellectual, very proud of that. And so um, they were known for their architecture, their art, their vibrant culture. And so we have every indication to believe that here was Paul's plan when he touched down in Greece. I'm going to wait. I'm going to probably recover physically because he had never fully rehabbed from these physical injuries that he had left from Philippi. So it's likely his body needed rest. Think about it. Every town he's been to, there's been a pattern. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches the gospel. People get saved. People get angry. There's a mob, and they run him out of town. So probably it's just like, I need to get my head back on straight. If I'm going to do this another few months, I just need to make sure this is what Jesus wants me to do. There's probably just some time he needed to just recover, recharge, rest, and reflect. And so we have every indication from the story. The language Luke uses is that he was going to wait there until Silas and Timothy caught up with him. And then they would circle back up and press forward with the gospel. So it's likely when he gets into this new town, he just he uses the language in here. He says he he just goes out and takes some walks. He's going to tour. He's going to be a tourist. And he's probably expecting to be impressed by this great city. But as he starts to walk around on his vacation time, something very different happens. So let's read together Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I'll read to you. We'll start with verses 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. And here, the guy can't help himself. He's there on vacation, supposed to be resting. And where does he find himself in verse 17? So he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. He also speaks daily in the public square, I love this phrase, to all who just happen to be there. You know, the question I want to just plant in your mind is, does anybody just happen to be there in the eyes of the Lord? Is this just happenstance, or are these these God- moments, or these gospel moments for these folks. Verse 18. He also, so it's like he's supposed to be there on a vacation, but here's what he fills up his day with after after getting disturbed. He teaches in the synagogues. He talks in the public square with anyone who listened. He also debates the philosophers. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching. Where they got that word from, I don't know. But he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. In other words, he's talking about Jesus and God the Father, and they're hearing this as some foreign, some foreign gods that they didn't know about. Then they took him to the high council of the city. This happened on the Areopagus. This happened at Mars Hill. Okay? Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. And then in parentheses, Luke adds, It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Now, doesn't that still happen today? Aren't there some of us who just can't wait to scroll and look at what new pictures, ideas, things people are saying and doing out there. It's like we're addicted to it. The, the news junkies, the social media junkies. Like, What is going on? I have to know. I can't be without it. My body's going to short circuit. If I can't get back in there and scroll through and see what new things are going on about. Well, that's an ancient thing that's been happening. So Luke doesn't mince any words. I don't want to miss any words. I just want to make sure that we understand what's going on here. Verse 16, it says, "While The story takes place while Paul was waiting. Don't we spend a lot of our life waiting? Waiting for things, waiting for stuff, waiting for people, waiting for lattes, waiting for our appetizers to be ready. We spend a lot of our life waiting. In fact, odds are you're waiting for something right now. You're waiting for me to say, Keith and the team, can you please come back up here? (laughs) We're waiting. We're waiting. Like, I've said this before, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to be 10, because I felt like once I get to double digits, life is going to change for me. And then it was, well, that was a letdown. I can't wait till I'm 13. Then I'll be a teenager. Then the rules around here are going to relax. The privileges are going to be great. And then that was a letdown. I couldn't wait till I was 16. You know why? I got to drive a car. And I thought that meant freedom. It meant errands is what it meant. And I couldn't wait for 18, because then that meant I was officially an adult. I was done with high school. I could go to college, and then I could live life the way that I wanted to. And then when I got to college, I couldn't wait for college to be done. And then I thought, well, I hope I could be married one day. I would like to be married. I would like to find a wife and found a wife and got married. And then we were like, you know, we can't wait to get, you know, when we could finally have an apartment. And then we were in that apartment for a couple months. We're like, wow, this isn't very big. Like, <laughs> Maybe it would be nice to have a house. And we were waiting to have enough money to have a house. And then we wanted to have kids. And then we had kids, we are like, maybe we could have another kid. And we had another kid. And now we're like, we can't wait until the day when the kids leave. <laughs> and then grandkids, right? Like, uh, Yeah, <laughs> she said, you can give those back. <laughs> Load them up with sugar and spoil them and send them home. Right? And then you're like, wow, I can't wait. Can't wait till I retire. And then you're going to retire and say, where did everything go? Right? Now I realize the arc that I gave you is not the traditional arc of everybody's life. I just want to suggest to you, we spend a lot of our life waiting. And I think there tends to be a tendency to think that waiting is wasted time. We're waiting for moments to happen. Like you wait 364 years to celebrate 24 hours and then you wait another 364 years to celebrate that day again. God loves to do beautiful things in our lives while we're waiting. God does not waste waiting. And some things we do wait for and we have to wait for them. But can I suggest to you, if you can learn the discipline of waiting on, not just waiting for, it will change the trajectory of your life. Paul was waiting on. He was waiting for at the same time. He was waiting for these two guys to show up to get off the boat so they could get on with the next season of their life. But in the meantime, he was waiting on the Lord. It's like when you go into a restaurant, when you're sitting at the table, you feel like I'm waiting for the server, for him to come over here and listen to what I want, and then you're waiting for him to bring it back and bring it back fast enough, not too fast, not too slow, just right enough. The server, on the other hand, is waiting on you. When it comes to you and the Lord, are you the one sitting at the table waiting for him to bring you everything that you want? Or are you the one saying, God, what is it that you have for me? What is it that you want? What can I do for you? Where can I go? Even as I'm waiting, I'm not wasting my time. Lots of awesome awesome things happened in the Bible while they were waiting. Paul was waiting. He was just waiting. He would have preferred to wait until Timothy and Silas showed up, but he had the nerve to go toward the city. He started taking a walk. And rather than being impressed, he's depressed. Verse 16 says he was deeply troubled. What deeply troubled him? All the many idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now by some historical accounts, I've seen as many, that they've estimated as many as 30,000. Three followed by four zeros, idols in that city shrines, buildings, right, statues and busts, uh, altars all over the city to the point where he couldn't turn anywhere and not be reminded that this city is completely given to idolatry and it deeply troubled him. In other words, he walked around the city and just observed its culture and rather than being impressed, his spirit was distressed. Have you ever had an experience like that? Maybe you traveled and you got off an airplane or got out of the car in a new city and you started walking around and you're seeing things with your physical eyes and you're hearing things with your physical ears and you're smelling things with your physical nose and you're touching things with your physical fingers. But inside of you, there's something that's just uneasy and unsettled spiritually. It's happened to me before in different places in the world. I, you know, I'll walk around an unfamiliar city and I'll... Feel that. But even more so, it's happening when I walk around my familiar city. Have you walked around our mall recently? Have you walked around the avenue recently and let your spirit just process what it's seeing and hearing? Have you listened in on casual conversations at work or at the Little League field or for me at the farmer's market on Friday? One thing that's been hitting me in the face is how increasingly profane common language is becoming. And I don't consider myself to be prudish or in some cocoon or holier than thou. I don't get rattled if I hear an occasional swear word or something, but I've got to tell you, more than any other season in my life, common profanity of the worst kind is just becoming normal vocabulary. I can't have a common conversation, even at the farmer's market, in the auction, sitting around with people, most of whom are older than I, without every other word being... It's like people can't even carry on a conversation without dropping this word and that word. It's every adjective. It's every noun. It's every adverb. There's two grandparents... Sitting in front of me with three children in between them at a recent auction. And the grandparents are just calling, they're back and forth with each other over the heads of their children, all of whom are probably early elementary school. Just every word in the book, just crass vocabulary. And I kept like looking at them going like this. And at the end, right when I got ready to leave, the, the, the granddad came over and was like, I'm sorry if the kids were disturbing you while we were at the auction today. And I just said, sir, to be honest, the kids didn't bother me at all. I said, I was just taken aback by the language you used in front of your children. Well, who the blank do you think you are? I just said, I'm just a concerned parent who is, you know, I said, maybe I overstepped my bounds. I said, but that's what bothered me. That's what rattled me. I wonder if you and I are still able to be sensitized to the Holy Spirit when, well, Pastor, I don't go out and walk around the town. Okay, do you walk around on this every now and again when you're bored and you're killing time? You're in your downtime, and you can't be separated this from a few minutes. I walked into Target the other day. There was like seven or eight people on the return line. You know what all of them were doing? They're doing this. They're just scrolling through their world. Facebook, TikTok. Twitter, their news feed, whatever it is, they're scrolling through. Now, I'll just, I have a news feed on mine that I scroll through. Here's the headlines as of right now. This is always a little bit nervous when I haven't, you know, curated these in advance. Russian missiles strike Ukrainian military training base near Polish border. Pope, in toughest comments yet, calls Ukrainian invasion armed aggression. American filmmaker and journalist Brent Renaud killed while covering war in Ukraine. Toxic burn pit puts the health of U.S. veterans at risk. She said she'd been kidnapped and tortured for 22 days. Did she make it all up? Putin has already developed a chemical weapon in Salisbury. The housekeeping rule that's kept my family's kitchen drawer spotless for more than 75 years. <laughs> yeah. And then there's two more. Captured Russian pilot says he was ordered to hit civilian targets. And then over seventy vehicles involved in massive pileup on snowy Pennsylvania interstate following flash freeze. Do you ever just scroll through your culture and have your spirit say, God help us? I'm tarrying a little longer on this point and it's just because I feel like I should. God just brought to my mind right now it was maybe six weeks ago or so, I don't remember. I was remember when I ran Kathy and Amber, remember when we I uh, told you we had gone to the playground that day, and we saw the. Okay, so it was that day. I, it was really nice on a Saturday, not like yesterday, but it was one of those random like seventy degree days. And so we're like, let's take the boys on a Saturday afternoon. Let's take them over to the playground, and it was packed. At the end. I think it was the day we texted you, and you went to you went to the one playground, and we went to the other. Um, and while we were there, like you see all these kids like playing around each other, and everything's cool, and. Then there's these, and I'm not painting with a broad brush here, but there was a group of middle schoolers there that were totally unsupervised by anybody, about five or six of them. They decided they're going to just run roughshod over the whole playground. They, get, they pile one kid inside of one of the special needs swings, and they decided they as a group were going to try and spin the swing, so it went the whole way around broke one of the chains off the thing and run away laughing to the next thing. And then they get one of the kids inside one of the swings and they're bouncing them up and down. And you can see parents literally taking their kids away from these other kids. And it's just like, you're looking into the eyes of these middle school kids and I just see like lawlessness in their eyes. And I'm like, where are your parents? Why is this so funny to you? And then why do the rest of us, myself included, feel like, I want to step up and do something here, but heaven forbid if I get sued. Deeply troubled by what he saw. May we, the church, not be so desensitized by our world. That we're unable to be deeply distressed by the lostness of our world in such a way that we don't just wring our hands and say tsk, tisk, But we do what Paul did. Paul said, I know I'm supposed to be on vacation. I'm supposed to be waiting. But I'm in a city that is lost. And they're ignorant. They don't even know how lost they are. And it's evidenced by the fact that around this city... They've got 30,000 different gods that they worship. They obviously have incorrect thinking about God, and they don't know it's incorrect. They even have these little empty altars around here that say to the unknown God because they're afraid they might have missed one. So they're covering their bases. Here's all the gods we know. We're even going to worship the gods that we're not sure if they're out there. We're going to cover our bases. And Paul says, this city is lost. They are ignorant and they are culpable. Somebody needs to tell them the truth about who God is. But I'm on vacation. It's not really my place. I'm here by myself. That's not what he does. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches the gospel to the religious people. And I want you to know the gospel still needs to be preached in church. We still need to hear the gospel. Because religion will not lead you to Jesus. And I dare say that if our mission is to be disciples and to make disciples, we can't have 35 different definitions of who Jesus is. We can't have 10 different ways that you can get into heaven. We can't have 500 different ideas about who God is, who we are, what our responsibilities are, and what judgment looks like. We need to hear and know the gospel. Well, pastor, I don't want to hear the same message every week. Well, neither do I. I'm not suggesting I just photocopy this sermon and never study another passage in my life. But there's some things we need to hear over and over and over and over again. Well, that's dry and boring. Well, that's our fault. If I preach to you a boring gospel, that's not the gospel's fault. That's on me. The gospel's not boring. It's not dry. But we need to know it. And he starts there because he knows in that gathering at the synagogue are people who love God. They love the scriptures. And from reading their Old Testament, we call it Old Testament. They called it the scriptures. He knew that group of people is waiting for the king to come and set up his kingdom. That's where that story ends. They didn't know anything about the Jesus who had already came and died and fulfilled that. And he said, I need to go tell them. They need to know that he came. And so he goes and he reasons with them. He also goes to the mall. He goes to the public places. And he just opens himself up and says he talked to anybody who just happened to be there. That's a group of people we can always go after. You can go after the people who will just happen to be where you're going to go this afternoon. The person you pay way too much for for a gallon of gas, right? The place you're going to go get lunch. The person who receives your package at the post office. The person who happens to park their car next to you when you get out and they open up the door at the same time and you're walking in the same direction. That person. Whoever just happens to be there is somebody who you could potentially speak to, because I don't believe theologically that your path just happens to cross theirs, but I'll leave that with you to wrestle through on your own. This is what's going on, and then he engages the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and I don't know enough to give you uh, a crash course on ancient Greek philosophy 101, but I'll give you two words to understand the Epicurean. Or one word to understand the Epicureans, one word to understand the Stoics. They both start with E. When you think Epicureans, think enjoy. Enjoy. Epicureans believed that the chief purpose of man was to enjoy life, to seek pleasure. Now, not unlike the hedonistic, crazy, sex-crazed things that had taken some of these other cities over, but in the sense of avoiding pain at all costs. This life is all there is. You should enjoy it. Don't waste your time over anxiety, stress, or pain. Just enjoy life, wring life out of every possible good thing you can enjoy because when you die, that's it. Those are the Epicureans. The Stoics, a little more bleak. They believed in life is to be endured. So the Epicureans say life is to be enjoyed. Stoics say life is to be endured. Bad things are going to happen, but keep a stiff upper lip and handle it with dignity. Bad things are going to happen, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and tunnel through it. Those were the Stoics. They also believe that this life is all that you have, and it's to be endured with dignity. Pretty bleak outlook. So they're hearing Paul, and they're saying, this guy is a babbler. In other words, he doesn't talk like anybody else that we've heard talk around here he obviously doesn't follow the same structure as our philosophy schools he's just babbling he's got strange ideas and he's preaching about some foreign gods because they hear him talk about jesus and they hear him talk about god the father and they say oh he's talking about foreign gods and they were right and they were wrong they were foreign to them but these were this is the one true god verse 19 They take them up to the Mars Hill and they say, come and tell us about this new teaching. You're saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. This is crazy to me. Like he doesn't have, this is like an impromptu invitation. Paul, the missionary is being invited to stand before the main thinkers of this city. Highly intellectual, highly educated people, a different class and ilk of listener and he had encountered before. And what's interesting is if you go back to verse 17, I'm sorry, it's verse 18, we get the content of everything Paul was preaching in the synagogue, in the public square, and on Mars Hill. It says he was talking about two things. What was he talking about? What was the content of his sermon? Jesus and his resurrection. Now, does that sound familiar to you? What did Paul teach in Philippi? Jesus and his resurrection. What did he teach in Thessalonica? Jesus and his resurrection. What did he teach in Berea? You get the pattern? Jesus and his resurrection. What does he teach among the church people? Jesus and his resurrection. What does he talk to people about who happen to be in the square? Jesus and his resurrection. What does he talk to the wealthy up and outers, the people with, you know, he's going into place like, think about walking, like, through downtown, like, well, d- downtown, to the campus of Oxford University. Walking, wandering around the campus of Harvard or Yale, or even the person making your latte has two PhDs and is working on a third. Now, if you're somebody like me who doesn't have all that education, but don't get me wrong. I would love to continue my education. Would love to finish my Master's of Divinity. Would love to go after a doctorate. Would love to be able to get onto those things. I'm not downing that whatsoever. But I can also say as someone who has great esteem, for those of you that got on with that, there can be a very human intimidation when you know you're in a room and in a circle where you are the least educated and informed in the group. This is where he finds himself. And I'm trying to put myself in his shoes. I've never quite had a circumstance exactly like that. Closest I could come up with was when a Christian Mealy, years ago, wanted to have a kickoff event to announce that he was running for state senate. At that time, Christian was attending the church. He's now moving up to Harford County and is running for um, office in Harford County and is finding a new church to attend there. But in the time that he was here, and I was his pastor, he came to me and said, Pastor, I'd love for you to attend this political kickoff event. And already as a pastor, I'm just like, oh boy. Like politics and pastors and who you attend, what event you attend and who sees you there and what how they fill in the blanks and all this stuff. I'm just like, oh man, you've got to be... I've got to really think carefully about all this. He says, no, no, no. It's like, I, want, you don't, I don't mean just attend. I want you to open it up with a devotion. I'm like, you want me to go into a room filled with politicians and teach, talk about the Bible before you guys talk about politics? Yeah, and I want it to be really evangelistic. And oh, the governor, Governor Hogan's going to be there. Yeah, no pressure. And I'm like, you know, I, without thinking, I just said, oh, of course, that'd be great. That sounds like a lot of fun. And he walks away, I'm like, dummy, what did you just get yourself into? And, you know, I'm a human just like anybody else. I'm not intimidated to talk about the Bible, but that's a room that's unfamiliar to me. Believe it or not, I don't sit around tables with politicians every day of my life and talk politics. I don't have a clue how to swim in those waters. There's sharks in those waters. I don't know how to talk politics on that level. I don't even know what it means if I sit at a table and I'm seen with a certain person. Like, I don't. I just try and stay away from it. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But there's just an intimidation to me that says, do not, sw-. like there's a big, you know, in the swimming pool, they have the little line with the buoys on it and you don't go past it. That's to me like you don't swim there. And so, you know, four weeks later, I find myself climbing up into the little platform there and all the assembled politicians are there The 99% of them don't have any concern to hear anything I have to say which is fair they don't even know who I am and I'm just the person that's going to talk before the next person it's one of those events where it's like I'm going to introduce the introducer and then the introducer is going to introduce the the next introducer and then they're going to introduce the keynote person I'm just finding myself somewhere in this I'm like oh my goodness here I am I'm going to talk about Nehemiah and how you build something and Talk about Jesus and the governor sitting right over here. And fortunately, I look over. Governor is knee deep in his phone. He had no idea what I was saying. So I was relieved. It's like, he's not even paying attention to what I'm saying. I can't put myself totally in Paul's shoes. I can't have a little bit of a frame of reference to be like, I did not get up today thinking I was going to give a sermon to this group of people with no preparation. So that's where he is. They said, you're saying some strange things. We want to know what it's about. Because we like to know all the latest ideas. And that's still around here today. There are people who just just loving the newest ideas. I got to keep on going here. But here's my application point here. How did one surefire way to pique interest in a public conversation is by talking about things that are otherworldly? If you it's Jesus knocking on the door of your cold heart. Would somebody please let him in? <laughs> that's it's getting it's getting closer. <laughs> Those of you that are watching online, there's just some hollow banging going on. It was over here, and now it's over here. So, you know, if the feed cuts out, pray for us, but I think we're going to be all right. But here's what I know. If you really want to move conversation spiritual, you can't just repeat all the vomit that you hear in public conversation all the time. You've got to speak about something that's outside of the world that people normally live in and give them a different perspective. Let's keep let's keep moving ahead. Acts chapter 17 verses 22 through 31. So Paul standing before the council, now I want to know what are you going to do in this moment, Paul? How are you going to how are you going to talk to these really smart dudes about the Bible, that they don't even know exists. These people haven't heard of Jesus. They haven't heard of God. They are completely and totally ignorant. That's the point Paul's going to make. He's basically going to say, I've walked through your city, and I've come to the conclusion, you're not thinking accurately about God. There's a big problem in the city, and the problem is, you have opinions and ideas about God that aren't true. Can I tell you, your opinion and my opinion about God mean next to nothing. My ideas about who I think God is, my preferences for what I'd like to, my ideas, my opinions don't mean much. What really matters is what God says about who He is and how He's revealed that to us through the Scripture. My favorite book, The Knowledge of the Holy, written by A.W. Tozer, in the very first page of the very first chapter, he says something to this effect. The most important thing... Of any man or any woman is what comes into your mind when we ask you, what do you think God is? Who do you think he is? What do you think God is like? He says that's the most important thing is what comes into your mind when you think, what is God like? Because you will live your entire life based on your thoughts That comma is an answer to that question. Your life right now is a living confession of what you really believe about God. No matter what you've said or what you've repeated, your life is the most accurate proof of what you really believe about God. And Paul is troubled because he's saying this city is thinks wrongly about God and his one goal when he goes to Mars Hill is I've got to give them the truth and try and get them to think accurately about God. Is there anything more important in life for you to be committed to than to think accurately about God? And where are you going to go for that? Well, I've got YouTube. I've got Right Now Media. I've got friends. I've got Twitter. Yes, but you know where we need to go? Right here. This is the revealed truth of God. This is the book from God about God, and he's the only one qualified to write a book on him. And that's where we go. So he stands before the council, and here's his opening remark. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. And you're like, wow, what's he doing here? Well, first of all, he's being polite. He's He's not starting off by saying, men of Athens, I have noticed that you're a bunch of heathens. I noticed you're all on your way to hell. Doesn't start off that way. He says, I notice you're very religious in every way. He's being polite. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, he's just schmoozing. He's watering it down. No, he's not complimenting them. He's essentially saying, I notice you're very religious, but you're totally lost. Because he says religion doesn't, he's showing them religion's not going to get you to heaven. His Verse 20, as I was walking along, touring your city, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. And some of them are thinking, okay, yeah, he's been in that part of the city, he's seen that altar. Actually, they had more than one altar that said that, and I'll get to that in a second. And they're thinking, okay, yeah. He says, this God, whom you worship without knowing, I know him. Wouldn't you like to know what he's like? I want to introduce you to the God that you don't know. And you can see they're probably right now. He's using their culture to stimulate interest. And now they're eager to hear what he has to say. It's a brilliant approach. I was walking around your neighborhood and noticed this here. Let's talk about this for a second. And they're already all ears. Let me keep going. I got to move. uh, Verse 24. He is the God. So now he's going to tell them about the unknown God, I'll put a pin in this, stay right here at verse 24 with me. 600 years before this, there's a huge plague that swept over Athens. Lots of people were dying. And they turned to their gods for help. And there was a philosopher by the name of Epimenides. He released sheep to roam throughout the city. And you've got to follow me, this is weird. They're desperate for the gods to intervene. He comes up with this idea, let's just let sheep roam throughout the city, and wherever these sheep will stop and rest, we will sacrifice the sheep and offer them to the God whose shrine is closest to where the sheep lay down. So if they wander over to the shrine of Zeus, they sacrifice the sheep to Zeus. To the shrine of Venus, they sacrifice them to Venus and so on and so forth. Caveat, if the sheep lay down in a place of the city where there's no shrine nearby... They will sacrifice them to the unknown God. And they'll put an altar there. Now isn't it fascinating that 600 years before the Lamb of God would be sacrificed to the unknown God, human beings are sacrificing lambs to all gods, including the unknown God. But that's the origin of these altars. So, Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. Here it is. Now listen up. This is awesome. Basically, he's going to show you in two... You could read this all in two minutes. You could say it all in two minutes. He's going to cover who God is, who we are, our responsibility to him, and the accountability we have for that relationship. He is the God who made the world. He made the world. He made you. He made everything in it. In other words, he's saying he is the creator, and he is distinct from and separate from his creation. So since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in your man-made temples. Human hands can't serve his needs. He has no needs. He himself gives you life and breath. You don't give him life and breath with your architecture and your statues because he, he gave life to breath to everything. He satisfies your needs. You don't satisfy his needs. Verse 26. From one man He created all the nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and He determined their boundaries, verse 27. This God, the Creator, He has a purpose for your life. You have an obligation to Him based on the fact that you are the creature, not the Creator. Here's your obligation. Your obligation is to seek Him, Perhaps find your way toward him and find him even though he's not far from us. Now he quotes this philosopher Epimenides who wrote this phrase 600 years earlier. For in him we live and move and exist. That's not found in the Bible. That's found in Greek poetry. You see how well read he was? And he finds something in their own literature that echoes and reveals and comes alongside of the truth of the Bible. And he uses it as a bridge to tell the big story about Jesus so they can find how to fit themselves in the story. And then he quotes a second philosopher who says, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Here's what he's covered so far. God's the creator and he's distinct from his creation. We are his creatures and we are his offspring. And based on the fact that He is our Father, we're His offspring, and He's our Creator, we have obligations and responsibilities to Him based upon that relationship. Verse 29. Since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol that a craftsman could design out of gold or silver or stone. In other words, he's saying this. If God is your Father, you can't create Him from stone. That makes no sense. He came before you, and he gave you life. You can't think, well, if I just have enough gold and stuff and mold it, now I can make God into what I want. Now, we're saying, you don't have the right to define God the way you want since you're his kid. And there's still lots of us running around today trying to make God into the version of him that we'd like him to be, even though that's not who he really is. Now, here's where it gets serious. Some people have really trashed this sermon and said it was too soft and diluted. He didn't use any scripture. He didn't have a huge response at the end he doesn't get too deep into it listen to verse 30 and tell me if this sounds soft god overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him does that sound soft to you doesn't sound soft to me here's what he's saying god is the creator we're his creatures He tells us we have certain responsibilities based on that. We are responsible to seek him, to understand him, to know him, to align ourselves with him, and worship him in the spirit and truth. And now he's also saying that that you have a life that you're responsible for and you are culpable for your ignorance. If you dishonor him, you're culpable. And he goes further. He doubles down in verse 31. He has set a day for judging the world with justice. And now he introduces Jesus, not as a baby in a manger, but as a righteous judge. By the man he has appointed and he proved to everyone who that is by raising him from the dead. Here's where he lands. You are fully responsible and you will give account to the creator for how you lived your life. And you let that settle in personally this morning. You will give an account to God and only you will give an account to God for how you lived your life. You will answer to Jesus who knows the truth. You will answer to him for how, what you've done with what he gave you. You'll answer for what you've done with your time. You'll answer for what you've done with your money. You will answer for what you've done with your skills and talents. You will answer for how you've treated other people. All those things are included in all of the parables of Jesus. So don't get mad and recoil when spiritual leaders and mentors in your life try and hold you accountable for those things. Now, I'm trying to set you up to pass an exam. I know my son, when he brings his homework home, sometimes I catch him cutting corners. And I'll be like, dude, don't you need to write down more for that answer? He's like, no, the teacher isn't going to check my work. And then there's other times where he's like, no, dad, I have to write this all down because we're going to get, our work is going to be checked. You live your life differently when you believe your work is going to be checked. Checked. Some of you don't believe your work is going to be checked. Well, yeah, I do. You're not living like it. You're living with an idea of a God who's not going to check your giving, who's not going to check your serving. He's not going to check your compassion. He's not going to check how you talk about people. He's not going to check what you put before your eyes and into your ears. He's not going to check those things. You're living your life like you're not going to have your work checked. I want to tell you right now, The word tells us Jesus is a righteous judge. He will judge all of us according to the life that we've lived. Is there room for you to check your work today? Is it valuable for you to understand who God really is? What he's really given you? How he really calls you to live? And call upon him to strengthen you and transform you so that you can live a life that is worthy of him. Live a life that can be put in front of Jesus for judgment and he can look at you and say, Well done, you've been faithful with a little and now I want to release to you more. You will and I will answer to Jesus for how we lived our life. And if we've dishonored Jesus, there is judgment. If we'd honored him, there is reward. And this is what he's trying to get through to these people. So let me uh, just give you one quick application point because i got to close. You could kind of put this all under a category of pre-evangelism, even though I think there's... Evan- you know what he's doing? He's giving them the big story that Jesus fits into because those people have little to no biblical understanding. You know, sometimes you're going to run into people in your life that have little to no biblical understanding. The Greeks, they thought life was a big old circle with no afterlife. It has no beginning, it has no end, it goes around and around and around. They couldn't fit, Jesus doesn't fit into that story. Paul tells them a story about history that's linear, meaning it has a beginning, it has an end. And we're moving moving from the beginning to an end. Here are some of the things that happen along the way. They couldn't even, Jesus didn't even fit into the story that the Greeks thought life really was constructed by. And sometimes you have to be patient in your approach with people, help them understand the big story of life so they can see where Jesus fits in. Because in the Greek story of life, which was inaccurate and incorrect, there was no need for a Jesus there. Because there was no eternity. There was no resurrection. The Greeks were open to the idea that maybe after death, your mind lived on, but they totally were not into the idea of a resurrected body. That was ridiculous. And in fact, it's at this point in the story, they cut Paul off. They stop his sermon two minutes in. I don't think he was done yet, but they stopped him. Verse 32, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. And I just told you why. They thought a resurrected body was just ridiculous. And at this point, they dismissed him as as lunacy. But others said, we're done hearing now, but we want to hear more about this later. We'll think about it. Let's talk more about it again. They didn't totally write him off. Verse 33, and that, this is a sad phrase, that ended Paul's discussion with them. And at this point, it would kind of be easy to say, was that whole sermon a failure? And you need to know, a lot of people who have written about Paul's sermon on Mars Hill have written about it very critically, say this should not be a pattern that we adopt today. They say that the main critiques are, he quoted no scripture. He diluted the strength of his message to appease an intellectual audience. And there was a very weak response to his preaching compared to other cities he's been in. I don't have time to take umbrage with all three of those, but I would take umbrage with all three of those. He did not quote scripture and verse, but number one, they cut him off. And number two, he covered the entire story of the gospel in truth, accurately. And the Holy Spirit was evidently working on hearts while he spoke. I don't see that he diluted this message at all. In fact, he two minutes in, he's talking about Jesus, the righteous judge. That's pretty hardcore. I can tell when people turn off when I talk about Jesus being the judge. I bet he experienced the same thing. You know, it is possible to preach a full-blown, scripturally accurate gospel message and see nobody respond positively. That's possible. It happens all the time. That has more to do with the heart of the Athenians than it did with the content of Paul's message. They say it had weak or meager results. Now, here's where I would disagree, because let's keep reading verse 34. Some joined him and became believers. Two minutes into a message. Do you understand what's remarkable here? Everybody Paul ever preached to got the same message, whether they were man or woman, rich or poor or middle class, whether they were educated or uneducated, he preached Jesus and the gospel. Friends, every human comes to God the same way. There's one way in, and that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's one way in. One way in. And even in this little insignificant message, some people who you would think would be the first to write him off. Dionysius, a member of the elevated philosophic council, believes and gets saved. And a woman named Damaris and others. I don't think that's ineffective. What if you're Dionysius? Would you say, well, yeah, that must have been a terrible message. Thanks for writing me off. One person, two people, more people hear that two minutes and they believe And they join them and they become believers. And you're saying, well, where did that happen? Where was the sinner's prayer? Oh, where do you see the sinner's prayer recorded in the New Testament? Well, do they really understand everything? I don't know. They only got two minutes of the sermon. Well, how much do you need to know to be saved? What are the two things and the only two things the New Testament teaches that we need in order to be saved? We have to believe and believe and repent. I heard confess. I'm going to get to that in a second. Good. You're giving me a softball. All right, I'm going to get this one for you. You don't have valid confession without belief. Confession is simply you putting words to what you believe, belief comes first. Belief means to be utterly convinced to cling to, to rely on, to trust in, belief. When Paul says, confess with your mouth, he doesn't say, repeat what another person tells you to repeat, whether you believe it or not. That's a ritual. A ritual will not save you. I'm terrified to think there's many thousands of people who repeated phrases thinking that there was an abracadabraic power in them. That's totally not an adjective. Um... That there's some type of magical power and if I repeat a sinner's prayer, I'll be saved. That's not a confession. That's a ritual. If, however, the same words come out of your mouth that are a reflection of your belief, that's a confession. Believe and repent. Believe and repent. Believe and repent. Turn away from living for yourself. Turn towards the holy God and believe. Well, believe what? Very simple. You have to believe you need to be saved. You have to believe Jesus can save you and you have to believe that he will save you. That's it. That's what they, they had to believe they needed to be saved. They had to believe that Jesus could save them. They had to believe that he would. And we don't have like a model prayer that we're supposed to pray all the time. We just know that belief, repentance, and there's a form of confession, John 10, 9 and 10, where we verbalize our beliefs to Jesus. Do you know some of, the, some of the very few appeals for salvation we hear in the New Testament are really short and direct? How about when Peter gets out of the boat, walks towards Jesus, and starts to sink? He prays a prayer of salvation. What's, what's the content of his prayer? What's he say? Save me. Other translations, Lord, save me, I perish. And what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? How does he respond while Peter's sinking. And he says, save me. What does he do? He saves him. How about the thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus? What's his salvation appeal? Remember me. How does Jesus respond? (laughs) I will, and you will be. Do you know that it's possible they just said, these people heard and just said Jesus save me and God saw the belief in their heart heard it through the confession of their lips sensed their repentance and they were gloriously saved isn't it amazing that we can make things sometimes more complex than they actually are I don't want you to be discouraged I want to encourage you let me leave you with this last application thought Keith team will you come see this is what you were waiting for Keith guys gals come I don't want you to be discouraged because if you've had experiences like me, there's times where you present the truth to people or you try to engage someone in a conversation and it just does not go. It doesn't result in the story you want to tell anybody about. Here's what happens anytime we present the truth. It demands one of three responses, belief, rejection, or curiosity. We see them all here. Some heard what Paul was saying and they laughed him off and they were done. They wrote him off forever. Their hearts were hard. They wrote him off. They rejected it. Others heard what he said, and they didn't believe right away, but they said, we'll hear this again. He piqued their interest. They were curious. And then there were a few who heard and believed, and they became believers that day. And they joined him. And what what were they joining up for? Telling other people the same story. They joined him. And now a church is planted in Athens. Every time you speak the truth, there's one of three reactions. We believe it, we reject it, or we're curious. Let me pray over you today. Would you like to come into God's kingdom Then believe and repent? Repent and believe. Turn away from living for you Uproot all your old incorrect ideas and opinions about who God is and let Him Himself introduce Himself to you as He really is through His Spirit, through His Word, through the community of faith. Believe that you need to be saved, that you're incapable of living the better life that you know you should be living, that you're not. As some of your own poets have said, to err is human. And nobody's perfect. We know we're filled with errors and we're imperfect. That means we need to be saved. Do you believe Jesus can save you, that he has the ability to? If you believe he rose from the dead, then he can save you. Do you believe he will save you or that you're beyond being saved? Do you believe if you will but call out to him, That he will hear you and he wants to save you and he can save you. If you believe and you repent, you will be saved. I encourage you to just pray a simple prayer. You can use your own words or you can use mine because God sees your belief. He sees your repentant heart. It's not a formula. He sees the sincerity of those things. And now put it into words. Verbalize your confession to him. If you need a guide, I'll give you a simple one. Dear Jesus, please save me. I repent for my sins. You're the Lord. I follow you now. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Keep your eyes closed for a second. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, God heard it. If you meant it and you're gloriously saved, you don't have to do another thing. I want to just ask you to do something brave though. I'm looking, my eyes are open, but I've asked everybody to keep their eyes closed for a second. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'm going to count to three. I just want you to slip up a hand, make eye contact with me, and put your hand back down. I want to be specific. You don't have to keep praying this prayer over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again. But if you prayed this prayer, and you meant it, and you're experiencing the joy of salvation today, I just want to celebrate with you. So I want to count to three, if you prayed that prayer with me, just slip up your hand. Make eye contact with me, then you can put your hand right back down. One, two, three. Who prayed with me today? Thank you, buddy. Who else? Praise his name. Praise his name. Heavenly Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters today that you will make our hearts tender towards your voice. That our spirits will be receptive to the things that cause your spirit to be distressed that you'll help us recognize the lostness of our neighborhoods, of our workplaces, of our public spaces, of our communities. Not in a way that makes us cynical, pessimistic, and hopeless, but in a way that inspires us to pray, to intercede, to seek you, and to engage lost people that happen to be around us in spiritual conversations with an intention of finding out what they think about you and influencing their lives to come into relationship with you. I pray for courage, boldness in this congregation. I also pray, Jesus, that the reality that we will stand before the judge sinks into our hearts in such a way that it purifies the way we live our life And it incentivizes our pursuit of understanding how to align the way we spend our time, our relationships, our skills, our gifts, and even our finances in this world so that we can stand before you unashamed when that day of judgment finally comes. I ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, We'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.